Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you have little faith. Why did you doubt? And when they got into the boat, the wind ceased, and those in the boat worshipped him, saying, Truly, you are the Son of God. You may be seated. When Nick asked if I might be able to uh, fill the pulpit on August the 13th, I immediately went to the lectionary to see what I had to work with. And my first reaction was actually a groan of displeasure when I noticed this gospel lesson. You see, I grew up in the church and I've heard a lot of sermons preached from this particular text, more than I can count. In my estimation, Peter walking on water is to homiletics what Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas is is You would be to your radio station sometime between November and the first week of January. And I don't think I'm the only person who probably feels this way. Um, In fact, just the other week when Nick asked which text I'll be preaching from, his immediate reaction was classic. So why am I standing before you today about to preach from this text? Because the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. Because the Holy Spirit is ever faithful to illumine the scriptures for the nurture of our faith. And because it turns out there's something there that I never saw in this text before. And I really wanted to share it with you today. So let's pray and we'll dig into what St. Matthew has recorded of these events. Blessed Lord, who caused all holy scriptures to be written for our learning, grant us so to hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by patience and the comfort of your holy word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life, which you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Now, I'm dating myself here a little bit, but I can still vividly remember being 16 years old going to see the Christian rock band Audio Adrenaline in concert, where they played their hit song, Walk on Water. And I'm going to share those lyrics with you because I think that they represent a really common way of understanding our gospel lesson this morning. And the lyrics are, Simon Peter, won't you put those nets down? Follow me, I'll lead you out of this town to a place where no boat has ever been. I will make you a fisher of men. Jesus walked out on the water, said, Take courage, it is me. Peter trusted, and he wanted to go farther, so he stepped out into the sea. Just like Peter, I want to go farther. Tread on the sea and walk on the water. Step where he steps, go where he goes, side by side when the sea billows roll. I'll be all right when the wind comes. I'll be all right when the waves come crashing. I'm not afraid. For this is my father's world. And then there's the chorus, which repeats over and over and over and over again. If I keep my eyes on Jesus, then I can walk on water. So the idea here is that Jesus called Peter away from his fishing boat because he had a bigger plan, more important things for him to do. Then after a season of training, Jesus challenges Peter to come out and walk on the water as a test of his faith. But Peter still lacking in faith, ended up sinking. The moral of the story, as it's been told, silly Peter should have just faithed harder. But Jesus saved him so he could do better next time. But spoiler alert, he 
he doesn't do any better next time. But we know better than Peter, so if we keep our eyes on Jesus, we can walk on water better than he did. Poor Peter so often gets such a bad rap. While we so often hear, dare to be a Daniel, or understand that with just a little more faith, like David, we can take down the Goliath in our life, we never really hear how we're supposed to be like Peter. Now, you'll never, ever, ever hear me preach a dare to be a Daniel sermon. And there's a good reason for that, because Daniel isn't the hero of the story. Neither was David or Moses or any of the rest of them. The ultimate lesson of the Bible is not that we should be more like any of those saints who went before. The ultimate lesson is that God is always the hero of every single story. And the moral is always that we are weak and broken and powerless and doomed until he saves us. Which is why today you will hear a Dare to be a Peter sermon. That's because... When we look closely at what St. Matthew has recorded for us, we can see so clearly that the big idea of this story is not about Peter walking on water. Our text this morning is immediately preceded by what was our gospel lesson last Sunday, Jesus feeding the 5,000. And in that lesson, we see that even after following Jesus for some time and seeing him perform signs and wonders, his 12 closest disciples still don't seem to understand who he is. Of the twelve, at least Andrew had been at Jesus' baptism where the Holy Spirit descended in the form of a dove and the voice of the Father booming over the crowd says, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. But the rest of the disciples were certainly present when Jesus cleansed the man of leprosy, when he healed the centurion's paralyzed servant, he healed Peter's mother-in-law, cast out demons, calmed the storm, resurrected the little girl from the dead, healed the woman with the issue of blood, restored sight to the blind, restored voice to the mute, and performed so many other signs and wonders. Now, these kinds of miraculous acts are not common in our day, but I think we sometimes go to the Gospels assuming that they must have been common in Jesus' time, but they weren't. It's hard to imagine witnessing all of these fantastic events and continuing to relate to Jesus just like any normal guy. But on the other hand, they also completely fail to empathize with Jesus in his humanity. At the beginning of this chapter, Matthew tells us that Jesus had just learned of his cousin, John the Baptist, beheading. Jesus had withdrawn, presumably to grieve, but the crowds followed him. And even in the midst of his deep grief, Jesus found compassion for those in that crowd. His disciples, both failing to grasp Jesus' divinity and his humanity, looked upon the crowd and the desolate place, and the only thing that they saw was a big problem, which they proceeded to make entirely Jesus' problem. Now, I don't know about you, but at my work, my boss doesn't really like it when I come with nothing but problems. See, I'm supposed to come with options for dealing with challenges. And further, if my boss has taken off for bereavement, I know that I probably need to manage whatever issues may arise by myself rather than adding to their burden. 
Now, maybe these are modern Western values, but to me, it just seems like a common sense work ethic and simple human empathy. On both of these counts, Jesus' disciples are really failing here. And I suspect that Jesus was very hurt by that. So Jesus ends up pulling things together all by himself, miraculously feeding the crowd, dismissing them by himself. And then he tells the disciples to get in the boat and go before him to the other side. One would imagine that his grief over John's death was now compounded with his frustration at his disciples and his complete exhaustion from the day's events. We're told by Matthew that he went up to the mountain to pray by himself. It seems that he remains there alone on the mountain until the fourth watch of the night, which probably doesn't mean very much to you. It certainly didn't mean anything to me until I did some research in preparation for today's sermon. So here's what I learned. So the Romans apparently divided the night into four watches, or three-hour periods when guards and their army were to remain awake to guard their camp's perimeter. Right, so the four were called Vespera, Medianocte, Galascanens, and Mane, with a changing of the guard at 9 p.m., at midnight, at 3 a.m., and at 6 a.m. So Matthew's telling us that Jesus remained alone on the mountain in prayer from sometime after dinner until about 6 in the morning. By that time, our text says that they were now far from land, beaten by the waves, for the wind was against them. It's generally accepted that the feeding of the 5,000 took place near Bethsaida, which is just about the northernmost tip of the Sea of Galilee. And just after our gospel lesson this morning in verse 34, Matthew tells us that they came to land at Gennesaret, which is about eight nautical miles from Bethsaida on the northwestern edge of the Sea of Galilee. Now, in the best of conditions, a first century sailboat could make a pace of at least four knots. So in theory, this journey could have been completed in about two hours. But the conditions on the sea were so poor that the disciples hadn't even managed the crossing after eight full hours. So Jesus, once again, finding compassion, set out to rescue the twelve. But remember, they'd been sailing all night, and I'm sure they were completely exhausted. Um, I'm right now working off of about four and a half inconsecutive hours of sleep. Um, I wasn't sailing a boat, I was watching a baby, but I can, I can empathize with them there. I don't know about you, but if I'm out at sea, the very last thing that I expect to see is a human being walking on the surface towards my boat. But that's what Jesus did. And we're told that the disciples were terrified, and that seems like a completely reasonable reaction to me. Now, in the translation that I read of this lesson, we're told that they said, it's a ghost, and they cried out in fear. Now, the actual word that they used according to Matthew was phantasma, which isn't quite the same thing as a ghost as we think of it in the contemporary meaning of that word. Not so much a disembodied dead person, but rather a spiritual being. And they didn't just cry out in fear. Matthew writes in the Greek, apotufobo ekratson. So apotufobo, that's pretty easy to translate. That just means in their fear. But ekratson was a little bit more difficult. The word means to croak. 
Um, it's actually used to describe the croaking of a crow. So they were screaming. They weren't just crying out. Suffice it to say, they were utterly terrified. Now, Jesus immediately responds to their screaming and says, Take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. And it's Peter's reaction to Jesus that I find to be one of the most interesting aspects of this story. Peter, who had been screaming in terror just moments ago, shouts back to the phantasmic figure walking on the water, Lord, if it is you, command me to come to you on the water. Now, some commentators see this as Peter pulling a verification test to make certain that this is in fact Jesus out in the sea and not some demon. But if that's the case, you'd think Peter would ask something like, Lord, if it is you, tell me where we first met. Or, Lord, if it is you, tell me what happened when my mother-in-law was sick with fever. Maybe Peter just thought it was a cool trick and wanted to try it out for himself. But one thing is very clear from Matthew's account of these events. It was Peter's idea. On this count, audio adrenaline were very wrong. Jesus didn't challenge Peter to come out as a test of his faith. This was not a test. Peter asked Jesus to invite him out on the water. And so Jesus said, come on. Fantastically, Peter stepped out onto the water and walked on the waves in the sea. But, we're told by Matthew, when he saw the wind, he was afraid And beginning to sink, he cried out, Lord, save me. Now, as with those song lyrics that I read earlier, I'm sure many of us have heard sermons about how this was the moment where Peter failed that test. He didn't have enough faith. If he had, he wouldn't have started to sink. After all, in verse 31, we're told that Jesus immediately reached out his hand and took hold of him, saying, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? Peter was afraid. He started sinking. And then Jesus chastised him for doubting. In response to that, first, I would say again a little bit louder for those in the back. This was never a test of Peter's faith. Second, I would point to the fact that something happened between Peter's sinking and Jesus' chastisement. Matthew tells us that Peter began to sink and he Ekratzon, right? Familiar word? Same word as before. He screamed out in terror, Lord, save me. And Jesus reached out and he saved him. I don't think that Jesus is chastising Peter for his failure to believe hard enough that Jesus could give him the power to walk on the water. That's silly. The answer is so much simpler. Peter began to sink and in that moment he feared for his life. He thought that Jesus would forsake him, let him sink into the depths of the sea. As I was meditating upon this gospel lesson, preparing to preach this sermon, I reflected on my own life. How often I've come up with an idea, something fantastic that I could do for Jesus. I've convinced myself that it was really Jesus's wonderful plan for my life, and I jumped in headfirst to end in devastating and complete failure. And in those moments of profound disappointment, wondered, Jesus, where are you? Why aren't you helping me? In my worst moments, I've even given into the feelings of abandonment and anger at God. 
I wonder how often has this been the case in your own relationship with Jesus? Where does your heart go when you're sinking? I told you earlier that you would hear a dare to be a Peter sermon today. And that's for two reasons. First of all, Peter was wrapped all up in himself. He was a broken, sinful man who had big ideas of what he could do for Jesus. It just happened that those plans weren't Jesus' plans. And he failed hard. And in his great crisis moment, he was filled with doubt. He did it again in an even more epic failure on Monday, Thursday, literally denying Jesus three times before the morning came. Peter had nothing to commend himself as righteous before God. And as he was sinking, he was utterly powerless to help himself. When I read this story now, I just can't unsee what I've seen. It isn't about Peter being tested. It's about Jesus allowing Peter to take himself to the absolute end of his rope where he could see for the very first time in his life that this story is not about himself. And just like Peter, I'll tell you today, your story is not about yourself. Now, if you're really identifying with Peter today, and this is the very first time that you're hearing this, then it probably feels like really bad news. As the late Jack Miller used to say, cheer up. You're way worse than you think you are. If your story was ultimately about you, then reality check, you could do nothing but sink right along with Peter. It's possible that I've shared this story about Martin Luther with you before, but I'm going to use it again shamelessly because it is excellent. In 1521, the German reformer Philip Melanchthon wrote a letter to Luther confessing his many shortcomings and his weak conscience. He wondered if he was a complete failure in his work of ministry. How could he continue in this work? Luther's response covered many pages, but ultimately climaxed at this piece of advice, which he writes, and I quote, If you are a preacher of mercy, do not preach an imaginary, but the true mercy. If mercy is true, you must therefore bear true and not imaginary sin. Because God does not save those who are only imaginary sinners. So, be a sinner. And let your sins be bold, but let your trust in Christ be stronger, and rejoice in Christ who is the victor over sin, death, and the world. Now, contrary to what his detractors have suggested for centuries, Luther wasn't telling Melanchthon just to take license to go out and commit a bunch of heinous sins. He was reminding his friend that just like Peter, none of us bring anything to Jesus, nothing but our sin. If we really believe the gospel, then we can rejoice in the grace of God so much that we're actually able to boast in the fact that we are total losers. So to sum up that first point, dare to be a fallen, broken, helpless, 
loser, just like Peter. Second, dare to be like Peter, who even in his lowest moment, even his doubt and fear, screamed out, Lord, save me. Because even though we've fallen, broken, helpless losers, even in our doubt and our fear, Jesus is the Son of God, and he cares for us. Jesus cares for you. You see, Peter had very little faith, and he doubted, and yet Jesus immediately reached down to save him. The story is about Jesus. Jesus is the hero. Your story is about Jesus. Jesus is your hero. And because of that, you can boast in your weakness. We are powerless, and that's okay. Jesus doesn't need our gifts. He's glorified in our weakness. We're not the Christ. In fact, we're much worse than we could ever imagine. And that's okay. Jesus doesn't need us, but he cares for us. Our plans are generally just that, ours. And they often fail. And that is okay too. Because God has a plan that is so much better than anything we could ever ask or even imagine. And Jesus is bringing it about to completion. So the next time that you find yourself caught in the storm of life, my prayer for you is that you will have the grace to set aside your plans. Boast and the fact that you have absolutely nothing to offer and simply wonder at the miraculous sight of Jesus coming immediately to your rescue. Amen.